please open your Bibles uh, to Philippians chapter 4. This morning, we're going to be working through verses 10 through 13. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would bless not only the reading of your word, but the preaching of your word. May you open our hearts today to know that it is you who speaks to us. It is you who makes us content. It is you who empowers us and strengthens us. And so, Lord, we pray that we would yet again turn away from our sin, that we would turn away from mistrusting you, questioning your goodness, questioning your power, questioning your wisdom, but instead resting in Christ, receiving your great love, and yet again embracing you and all of your promises and your purity and holiness and majesty of character and all the fullness of trust that is worthy of you. Help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So would you describe yourself this morning as somebody who is content? Or... Would you describe yourself this morning as somebody who perhaps always wants a little bit more? I probably lean towards the latter, I have to confess. Uh, we live in a world, though, we live in a society where contentment is not plentiful, but instead discontentment is pervasive. Uh, the American dream itself is driving you with ambition to have more and obtain more. Social media, for many of those who are on TikTok or Facebook or Instagram or whatever it might be, is this sort of comparison machine to constantly show you what you do not have, what you should or could be. And yet again, we also have our own indwelling sin, don't we? What's the 10th commandment? Not to want what is not yours. Discontentment is deep within us. But not all discontentment is bad. Some is right and some is wrong. The wrong stuff is perhaps easier for us to think about. It's the self-focused, impatient, frustration for more, whether it's material things, a longer vacation. I once went through that recently. Perhaps one of you also did this week. A better phone. Uh, Perhaps it's status, though. More respect, more prestige, more honor, social mobility, Uh, But the good discontentment is also important to think about. It's good that you're discontent with how much you are like Jesus, isn't it? It's good that you're discontent with the fact that you cannot overcome your sin, that you still do not trust Christ. It's good that you want to grow. But there's also other good discontentment like discontentment with injustice. That you know it's not right, that mass child murder happens in schools sometimes. That you know it's not right that large denominations of the Christian church hide scandals. That's a good discontentment. 
We're talking about these themes because that's in many ways what the Apostle Paul is landing the plane on in Philippians. We haven't worked through this whole book together, and we're studying one of the final texts of this wonderful epistle. And the theme that Paul really drills into here is contentment. The larger thrust from verses 10 through 20 is all about how the church, though impoverished and poor, in their immense generosity have supported their missionary supported the one apostle to the Gentiles who planted their own church. And then Paul is then going to tell them that as they have supported him, God also will provide for their needs. But here in these first three verses, he takes time for a little digression to speak about something very important in the Christian life. And kind of the tip of the spear of what Paul is teaching them is this. Continuous contentment only comes... In Christ. Continuous contentment only comes in Christ. And he kind of uses two parts of the shafts of the spear to get there. The first part, he explains his thankful joy in their provision for him. And then secondly, building, he says, I have continual contentment though, provision or not. So point number one, Paul's thankful joy in their provision. Point number two, Paul's continual contentment provision or not. So shaft of the spear one, Paul's thankful joy and provision. At the beginning of verse 10, he says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. I want you to imagine this. The apostle Paul, as he writes and pens this epistle, is likely in some sort of Roman prison. It could be house arrest. It could be a dingy, musty, cold, wet, dark jail cell. We don't know exactly where he was, but he was in prison as he wrote this. And he's in prison praying, thinking, strategizing how to bring the gospel to the imperial guard, how Christ and him crucified can be preached to the empire. And there's only one person really helping him. This young man, this aspiring pastor, Timothy, bringing him the few supplies that he can get. And then boom, Out of nowhere, in absolute surprise, who should come but a man named Epaphroditus, bringing a gift from a small, fledgling, struggling church far off in Macedonia, the church of Philippi. And Paul, seeing Epaphroditus, receiving the gift, is full of immense joy. Because God, yet again, has been faithful not only to provide for Paul, but to further sustain the mission of the gospel to Rome. The true occasion for Paul's joy, yes, is the food and the clothing, the money that the church has given him. He uses the language here of revive because this is something that has happened before. This is a a renewal of a care and support that the church have given him in the past. The the sort of imagery of the word here is when you look outside of the trees in the wintertime, right? Not the pine needles, but those like the oaks, they lose all their leaves and they're dead and bare for a time. And yet as spring comes, perhaps not as much here in California, but in other states, if you have four seasons, you know. As the leaves begin to pop, as the blooms begin to sprout, there is a revival and a renewal of life. And so too, Paul is thankful for the renewal of love and care and support for him and the mission. But who exactly does the Lord, excuse me, I just gave it away. 
Who exactly does Paul rejoice in? He's not so fond about food and clothing, is he? I mean, he's, he's thankful for that. But he's really rejoicing in his king. He's really rejoicing in the Lord. And really for two reasons. Paul is thankful that the Lord has provided. Thankful that the Lord is the one behind the church's provision. He is the provider behind the provision. We had some birds in my backyard recently. We have three small children. And young kids love animals, don't they? Anytime they get to see an animal, if they go to the zoo, if there's something in the wild, they just love it. And there was a little nest with three baby birds in the backyard in a bush. And every day we'd watch the mom leave the nest. And then she would kind of patrol. She would try to protect. But she'd have to leave. Why does she have to leave? She has to leave to get food, doesn't she? And she'd come back and you'd see, I mean, you could literally see these little long dangly worms hanging out of her beak. And she brings it back to her little nest. But we were telling our kids, yes, the mom is the one who feeds them, but who is the one that really feeds the baby birds? Who is the one who clothes the lilies? Who is the one who knows and feeds the sparrows and knows when they fall? It is God himself. And just like the birds, Paul knows it is God who is feeding and sustaining him. But secondly, Paul is thankful for the Lord's provision because he can see he's working in the church. This church that he started, that really was occasioned by a riot against him in the city of Philippi and by a few women worshiping by a river and a jailer repenting after God did a miracle. This is a church that now is able to support a foreign missionary. And Paul is thankful for that. They are his gospel partners. And you've probably had these same moments yourself, haven't you? Where God has provided for you. Your kids weren't doing well. Your kids were going off. And now you see they want to come back. You see they're beginning to walk in wisdom yet again. You see now they're returning to church. And who do you thank and who do you praise? It's the Lord, isn't it? But as he explains his thankful joy, he qualifies his statement. Second half of verse 10. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Why does Paul have to give a caveat? Why does he have to qualify his thankfulness? A little background might be helpful. In his second epistle, or at least what we call 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about there was an economic crisis in Macedonia. That's the larger region where the church of Philippi was located. And even though they were poor, the church in Philippi, the Macedonian churches, were giving to the apostle anyways. Something had happened, something very bad to the churches. And yet, nevertheless, in the past, they had given to Paul. In fact, Paul will go on to say in verses 14 through 16, that not just once, but twice, more than once, they had given to support him. But now, for whatever reason, we can see there had been a break. There was a gap, a chasm in their provision for the apostle. So Paul wants to be careful in qualifying his thankfulness. Paul doesn't want to sound like he's saying to the church, well, it's about time. I'm the apostle to the Gentiles. I'm the one called by God. I'm the one anointed and ordained. No, he's not sounding like that in any way. He's expressing real, true, heartfelt gratitude and saying, I know you wanted to help me. 
I know you wanted to see Gentiles like yourself saved. And I'm thankful that finally, yet again, God has allowed this to take place. What withered was the blossom of their ability, not their desire. And Paul makes that clear. So Paul rejoices in the Lord at their provision. He knows their heart. He encourages them in that. And now point number two, Paul's continual contentment, provision or not. He now makes a second caveat, a second qualifier in the beginning of verse 11. He says, it's not that I'm speaking of being in need. Now, did Paul have real needs? Where did I say he was again? Hated. He even says in this epistle, he is hated by people who are preaching the gospel. Verse 17 of chapter 1. It is astounding. Paul says, people are going out preaching Jesus Christ, life, death, and resurrection. Why? In order to harm Paul in prison. I mean, just astounding. Hated by other preachers. Secondly, ignored. He says in chapter 3 that, Everybody around him has abandoned him. And nobody seeks the interests of others, but they all seek their own interests. He has only but one, Timothy, for his help. He also says in chapter 3 that he's been rejected. That many who formerly he talked about to the church in Philippi, who used to follow the Lord, are now enemies of the cross. He's in prison, hated, ignored, rejected. Does that sound like somebody in need? But he says, I do not speak to you as one who is in need. What does he mean? First of all, he wants to make clear that his joy is not in the gift, but in the giver. Many of you, over the course of lifetimes of Christmas, birthdays, you've perhaps received gifts that you were thankful for. And they were good, thoughtful gifts. But what was more meaningful to you was the giver of the gift. The love and the care of the person who took the time to think about exactly what you needed. Exactly what would fit you in that situation in life. And that was truly the thing that made you thankful. Even more than the material object. Now, just think with me for a second in the Apostle Paul. What's the problem if Paul tries to find his joy in food, in clothing, and in money? Those are all very needed things, especially for someone in prison. But what's the problem there? Does food wear out? Excuse me, does food always last? No, you have to eat it. Do clothes wear out? Yes. They begin to fade. Does money run out? Yes, budgets are fully spent. Material things are quite simply and quite frankly not big enough to keep us content, are they? But why is Paul continually digressing? Why is he giving all these caveats? He's seeking a very teachable moment. If any of you have children and you're trying to be obedient to Scripture, Deuteronomy 6 talks about teaching your children as you walk, as you sit down, as you lie down, every occasion to instruct them in the ways of the Lord. And Paul now using his own life and his own occasion, his own strange circumstances to teach them something about the Christian life. And what does he say? He grounds why he doesn't speak of being in need in verse 11 and 12. Second half of 11, he says, For I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, 
and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He has learned through abounding and through being restricted, through doing incredibly well and being incredibly hindered, how to be content. Notice those opposites. Encompassing totality. Low, abound. Admired, mocked. Plenty, hunger. Think about steak, talk ramen. Abundance, need. Overflow, trickle. He has faced it all. And he has come out seeing something very clearly. He can be content in all, even though he faces all. And why? Because his contentment is outside of his situation. Think about Think about the sun, right? A beautiful day. The sun is shining. What happens in this world if things go terrible, if the economy crashes, if literally every single human being died on planet Earth, how would it affect the sun? Nothing. It would do zero to the sun because the sun is transcendent. It is outside. It is above what happens in this world. And so too, Paul is saying, my contentment is grounded and rooted in something outside of what happens here and now. And therefore, it doesn't matter what happens here and now because it is anchored in something above and something greater. And we're going to get to that in just a minute. Boom or bust, feast or famine, bear or bull, live or die. Paul can be content. And so too, the church is called to be content. Their situation wasn't easy. They were poor, as I mentioned already. The church was living in a culture that thought Christianity was weak, strange, foreign, perhaps even a threat to the empire. And these were people who were likely persecuted, suffering under not just opponents theologically, but opponents against the movement of these people who worship a king that's not Caesar. So life must not have been easy for them either. It's interesting, Paul here uses a word for contentment that is actually a sort of borrowed phrase. There are these old philosophers, many of you have heard of, called Stoics. People still use that term Stoic to talk about somebody who can handle pain, right? Who can just be sort of stonewall, stiff upper lip, British, make it happen. Stop complaining. And the term he uses here in Stoic philosophy is often used as someone who is very self-reliant, self-sufficient, someone who can weather the storm, somebody who's not moved by their outside circumstances because of themselves. Like a monk able to die in flames without flinching, like a soldier holding a plank for hours in PT, like a captain facing a 50-foot wave without wavering. But is that what Paul's talking about? Is it in himself? Or is he using the word to address an idea in his world, but to redefine that idea in light of the new world? So too, our culture has its own ideas about contentment, doesn't it? The people you drive by, on the 10 or the 215 you drive next to on the way to work, they all have their own ideas about contentment and freedom and independence. Most people today are seeking to grow, to progress, to build, 
If you rent, you often want to buy. If your kids go to public, perhaps one day they'll go to private. If you drive a Toyota, maybe, just maybe one day, you'll drive a Tesla. Now, are all these things necessarily wicked and terrible? Not necessarily. They're not all inherently wrong. But if we think buying private school, a better car, will bring us the thing that we're looking for, that sort of satisfaction and itching of the longing that is deep within your soul, you're wrong. You're confused. You are misguided. And you will one day come to see that it's not true. It is a myth that the more that we acquire, the higher that we climb, the more satisfied we become. I read a Ernest Hemingway book a long time ago about his sort of writing in Paris. His career with all these amazing authors of the early 20th century. And he talked about living in the Alps with one of his earlier marriages. And how the Alps were amazing until all the rich people came. And then once the rich people came, they brought in their own interesting little conniving things. And then he reflects at the end of the book and he says, and then one day I became rich from my successful writing. And then that's when I realized the time that I was truly happy. This is somebody who's not a Christian, so it's not a true contentment we're talking about. Even, but even unbelievers says the time I was truly happy is when I had basically nothing. And it was just my family and just my writing. Many Many in the world have come to see it is a myth that the more we get, the more content we become. Just think with me for a second. There is a problem with the story that we tell ourselves. That as we advance, the more free and independent we come. And the more free and independent we come, the more content we will be. Consider first, if we obtain that sort of freedom, we're still controlled by retaining that freedom. We're not truly free because we're constricted by keeping the freedom we have finally wrought. Secondly, think about this. Are the rich and the totally independent endlessly content? Just think for yourself. What is this line? Finish this line for me. How much do I need? Just a little bit more. Thirdly, The freedom and independence that any of us, by God's grace, are able to find in this life can dissolve in any instant, can't it? And isn't that worrying? Isn't that discontenting? Paul has a solution that is outside of our situation, just in the way that the sun is outside of this world. But what is his better way? What is it that we are missing? What has Paul Learned. I love that he uses that word, that I have learned something. He has learned a secret. Second half of 12 through the beginning of, through all the way of 13, he says, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Again, he uses another sort of loaded word for secret here. This word for secret that he has learned is a sort of mystery religion term been reading this book recently by C.S. Lewis. It's part of his space trilogy. It's called That Hideous Strength. And it's about Merlin somehow coming back to life. It's this sort of strange sci-fi. It's actually really interesting. But Merlin comes back to life. And Merlin is supposedly a sort of medieval druid. 
And so right when he meets the protagonist of the book, the pen dragon, whose name is Ransom, he begins to ask him these secret questions. Because Merlin belongs to the Druids, and they're a secret mystery religion. And you have to be initiated into the religion by learning secret things. And the more secrets you learn, the more faithful you are to this religion. And that's the sort of secret language Paul is using. But he's reinterpreting secret to mean something else. But what's the secret? It's that verse we hear all the time. Verse 13, I'll read it one more time. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It's a very misunderstood secret, I would have to say. How many of you have seen this secret plastered all over? How many of you have seen this secret on water bottles, above the bench press, on posters in the bathroom at the office, on the bumper in the car in front of you? What many people think this means is whatever I want really, really bad. That's not inherently against what God commands. Jesus will give me. Now, is that what Paul's saying? Is Paul saying, I will get whatever I want as long as it's not explicitly against what God commands? No. It's not a blank check to win the game, lose 20 pounds, and summit the peak. He has something far more profound going on here. In context, it's about contentment. In the flow of thought, it's about God enabling Paul to undergo every circumstance. And it is God who makes him able to undergo those things while being content. Him who strengthens him is Christ. Jesus is the secret that he has learned. Paul says in other places like 2 Corinthians 12 verses 7 through 10, he says, when I am weak, he is strong. Colossians 1.11, he says, I am praying for you, church in Colossae, that you would be strengthened by the power of his amazing might. Because it has to be God, it has to be Christ working in and through you to endure the things he has called you to. And you cannot be content on your own. How many of you have tried? Try as hard as you can to be satisfied, endlessly delighted with your lot. If you seek to do it in your own skin, in your own strength, you will come up wanting again and again. And so, brothers and sisters, don't we want this power to faithfully endure whatever it is that God has called us to? For most of us, thankfully, we're not going to be imprisoned for preaching the gospel. But even if we were, even if we had to one day be in bonds, one, God is still sovereign. Two, God still loves you. Three, God is still wise. Four, God will still use you. And five, and Paul's whole point, God will still delight you. Because he is your source of satisfaction. And so we need this power. We need Christ to love our spouse. To be content with the children and the job that he's given us. It is a Christ contentment, and that's the opposite of our culture. It's not a self-sufficiency, but a Christ-sufficiency. It's not drawing ourselves from within like the Stoic, but being lifted up from without by the Savior. It's not independence as an individual, but it is total dependence on one 
key individual, and that is Jesus. So can you feel the logic and the flow of thought? He's saying, I am thankful for your provision, but I want you to know that I am content, provision or not. And I am content, provision or not, by the power of Christ working within me. It is only the gospel that can bring Paul and ourselves contentment. And yet, we're discontent, aren't we? Before we knew the Lord, we rejected God as our chief object of contentment. We thought it would be a stress-free life, a secure future, having the things that we wanted. But God has designed us to only be satisfied in Him. He made you to know Him, and He made you with a thirst that was so deep that only something infinite could ever fulfill what you want. And he calls you to turn to him. And he promises that he will satisfy you if you come. And yet we stubbornly reject. We dig in our heels. I myself find that I slip into the old lies of thinking that these other things will give me what I'm looking for. That they will provide the contentment that I so deeply need. It's just like a drug addict, right? A drug addict loves, loves, worships his drug. His or her drug. Because it gives them this sort of feeling this sort of delight, this sort of escape. And yet they come to see again and again that it's not enough, that it begins to fade, that it actually begins to destroy them and hurt them and ruin their family, their career and their life. And yet, what do they do? They return again and again. And we would be fools to think that we are not exactly the same. It may not be something as obvious as substance abuse, but idol abuse is no different. And I am a chief offender, I can say that. Thankfully rescued by God's grace. But as we do that, as we seek contentment elsewhere, we're storing up wrath, storing up condemnation, storing up judgment. And yet Christ came to save us from that judgment. Jesus didn't come chiefly to rescue you from hunger. He didn't come chiefly to alleviate you from your pain from your arthritis, from your health issues. He didn't come chiefly to rescue you from your financial crisis. He came to rescue you from justice cosmically. He came to rescue you from separation, from life, true satisfaction in God forever. And what he did was, is he took that for you. He was content to suffer the dissatisfaction of hell on the cross as we just confessed in the Apostles' Creed so that you could be delighted, satisfied, and know him forever. He rises in power. He rises in might by the power of the Spirit to then send him, to send that Spirit to you, to empower you to be like him and content in every way. And so in conclusion, we will be fully content, fully satisfied, but not until the world to come. Not until we're in a place where there's no more sin, no more pain, no more tears, no more Satan, no more death. But even more than that, it's just not the absence of bad things, but it's the presence and the perfect communion with the only one true and perfect good thing, God himself who will be far more satisfying than we ever realize. We will be content then, 
And by his power, we can be, at least begin to be fully content now. So you might be thinking, well, okay, that's great. That's helpful. Thank you very much. How do I do that? I know that. How do I do that? And for every one of us, it's going to look different, isn't it? But three basic principles to keep in mind are this. Trust in his wisdom. Trust in his providence. Again and again, lean and rest that he is good and he knows what he's doing. Two, remember the great cost that this God who promises contentment paid. Not only to help you and love you, but to actually satisfy you and bring you into his family. You can trust him because he paid everything for you. And three, never stop begging for help. Never stop bending the knee. Never stop pleading with the king. If you're not a Christian this morning, here's something that I know about you. You have been, you at times will be unsatisfied. Life will come about at some point, however God engineers it for you personally, to where you see there has to be something more. There has to be something greater. And that's what God is saying to you this morning. You're right. There is. And I am it. It's not just the material things you could have, but it's the infinite, glorious King who is bestowing upon you the gift of grace and love and satisfaction. If you just but do one thing, come to me, trust me, rest in me, and you will see everything else is but a fading trifle and a distraction. So the point that Paul makes, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus is the secret to continual contentment. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your promises. We thank you that you are the fountain of life. We thank you that we will one day see you face to face, that we together will come to that new city, that true garden city, pearly gates, gem encrusted walls, streets of pure translucent gold, the river of the water of life flowing through its streets, stemming from your very throne, watering the tree of life with its many fruits and its leaves for the healing of the nations, where there will be no more curse or pain or suffering or tears or death, but we will serve you. We will love you. We will be with you face to face and we will rule with you, sharing in some way miraculously, mysteriously in union with Christ, sharing your throne. And so may we, in the midst of hardship and pain and trouble, cry out to you for help. May we, by your power, find contentment and satisfaction in you above all things. We thank you for the many gifts we have. All of them flow from your fatherly love. We thank you for the father that you have provided in this life. Even if we don't know them, even if they are gone, that father still was a necessary piece to us being born. And so, Lord, may we be thankful for that. Help us to trust you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.